This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. We all struggle with making healthy choices on the daily, and I like to follow the 80-20 rule, which means that 80% of the time I'm eating very healthy, 20% of the time I try to indulge. But many of us struggle with intense cravings and the feeling that we lack willpower. So joining me today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO and author of Defeat Your Cravings, The Back Door to Weight Loss. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's such an important conversation because we really all do struggle with food and food cravings. And I know that you actually had your own struggles with cravings and, you know, difficult relationship with food. Is that how you began your life's work? If you were to go to the Woodbury Country Deli in Syosset, Ireland, sometime in the 90s or early 2000s, you might find they were out of Pop-Tarts and pizza. And that's probably because I got there before you. You know, I'm 6'4", and I'm genetically lucky. I'm just like modestly muscular without doing much about it. And when I was a kid, I figured out that if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I could eat anything I want. Multiple pizzas, boxes of chocolate bars, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts. If it wasn't nailed down, it was fair game. And I was thin. I was happy. If you fast forward after college and graduate school, I was married. And I was commuting two hours each way to see patients and classes. And when I'd come home, we'd be working in the business a little bit. And, you know, God forbid my wife wanted to talk to me. I didn't have two minutes a day to work out, much less two hours. I worked out a little bit, but I just didn't have the time. And my metabolism was slowing down. But I found that the food still had a hold on me. It's like it had a life of its own. And what bothered me more about it, I didn't really start gaining weight right away. Eventually, I got up to almost 300 pounds, but um, I didn't really start gaining weight right away. I was kind of thinking about it all the time. And from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists, that was the most important thing to me was to be a great psychologist. And to be a great psychologist, it's, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I, I used to think people would present you with the jigsaw puzzle of their life, and you'd say just... You know, rotate this over here, you're missing this piece over here. But it's not really like that. It's, it's more like you have to lend people your soul. You have to be there with them so they, they love and trust you enough to do that. You know, I work with very high-risk people. I work with um, suicidal clients. I work with people after you just discovered an affair in the marriage. I, all types of crises. And I, I was really good when I saw 200 couples and nobody ever got divorced and I never lost anybody to suicide. But... Um, it wasn't 100% there. Coming from the family that I came from, I took a very depth psychological approach. I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I won't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach, right? And so I, I went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I confessed my soul, and I cried, and I screamed, and I figured out what I was feeling guilty about. And, and it helped me psychologically. I mean, these people were very good. It was a very soulful journey, but it didn't really help me with food. Somewhere around the time that I was 40, I had figured out that I needed a different paradigm. Rather than nurturing my inner wounded child to help and trying to love myself then, I needed to be more like the alpha dog of my own mind. And, you know, when the alpha dog is challenged with leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It, 
it snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. If you think about it, there are very strong parallels with other biological organs. So, you know, my bladder might be really pressing for me to pee right now. If it were, I would say, look, I'm talking to Dr. Claudia and I've got this important interview to do and you know what, I'll attend to you when I can, but I'm in control, not you. It's a very strong biological urge, but I'm in control. Um, if there's an attractive woman on the street, I don't run up and kiss her, right? There are ways to approach people and actually kind of run the other way because I'm shy. Um, but, but you know what I mean? It's, we live in a civil society and we're expected to control those impulses. So why is this any different? This is a very strong biological urge. There were three things that really supported me flipping this paradigm. And I wish I figured that out from that earlier. Um, I didn't have kids and I didn't commute. My ex-wife traveled for business. And so I had the opportunity to develop a second career. So in addition to my child and family practice, not an overeating practice, child and family, I started consulting for industry. I was on the wrong side of the war. I worked for big food and big pharma and was helping to sell, sell you know, sugar and starch and all these you know, crazy food-like substances, all these concentrated forms of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt that were engineered to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And that has nothing to do with whether my mama dropped me in my head or I was in a bad marriage or I had a hole in my heart, right? That's, that's a very powerful outside force. And they're, tar they're targeting the reptilian brain. I remembered something from neurology class, which was that the reptilian brain doesn't really know less. If, if this is the brainstem, um, when it looks at something in the environment, it, it's like it's playing a bad college drinking game. Do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Right? It's, it's, there's no love there. It's the mammalian brain that sits on top of that that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on the people that you love and on your tribe and your community? Um, and then it's the neocortex on top of that that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your long-term goals? Like weight loss and health and you know even work and art and spirituality and you know, your contribution to the world everything that kind of makes us uniquely human is up here but this is the thing that's responsible for your survival impulses and it has the capacity to push aside your rational brain thank thank god it does because that's how we manage to survive because you shouldn't be sitting around and contemplating your navel and your long-term goals if there's a hungry bear chasing you so it's got the capacity to take this out of the way Unfortunately, in the modern food environment, um, this doesn't do us much good because the, the modern food environment and these big companies, they excel at pushing those evolutionary buttons and making you think that they, you need their stuff to survive. Um, you know, they make very vibrant, diverse, shiny colors in their packaging, which in nature would signal the availability of a diversity of micronutrients. Uh, and so evolutionarily, we're, we're designed to eat the rainbow. We're very attracted to color. But in many of these cases, the food-like substances that they're producing don't really have those nutrients in them. And they're very good at, at creating plausible deniability. So this bag of potato chips is made with avocado oil, and therefore it's good for you, right? Does anybody really think a bag of potato chips is good for you? But the brain, the rational brain, just needs enough information to deny that you know, this is a totally bad thing to do, and, and, and it'll, it'll go past that. So um, I decided I had to be the awful wolf of my own mind. And I did something a little crazy. Your listeners are going to think this is a little crazy that you have a doctor on talking about this. 
Um, but I was not going to teach this. It was just a private experiment because I was really suffering. Um, doctors were telling me, you know, my triglycerides were over a thousand and they're telling me I'm going to die before I'm 40. Um, I was really suffering and I tried everything. And so I decided I had to set up a tripwire, like a, an alarm system so that I knew exactly when this thing in my head was getting going to be active. And that I would have to know the difference between healthy behavior and unhealthy behavior if I was going to be able to do anything about it. So I made a very clear rule. I will never have chocolate on a weekday. And that was one of my first rules. If I'm in a Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar at the counter and I hear a little voice in my head that says, you know what, Glenn? I know it's a Wednesday and you're not supposed to have chocolate on Wednesdays, but you worked out hard enough. A couple ounces is not going to hurt you. Oh, well, what the hell? Just start your silly diet again tomorrow. I'd say, wait a minute. That's not me. This is the embarrassing part. This, that's my inner pig. On a, <laughs> a chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as, as rude and crude as that sounds, I know now that what it did, it's, it functioned as a tripwire and it opened up a little space between stimulus and response. But that's the opportunity to wake up and make a different choice. It was not a miracle cure. I wasn't instantaneously thin and able to be perfect at that point. But I did have a little space. And slowly but surely, I would make better decisions. And there were all kinds of things you could do in that space. For me personally, I tried to fix my thinking. So for example, it's not true that it's just as easy to start your diet tomorrow. The way the brain works, it's called the principle of neuroplasticity. If you, if you have a craving and you have a thought of justification, like just start tomorrow, and then you indulge that craving, you've made the craving stronger and you've made the thought stronger. So you're more likely to have a deeper craving tomorrow and you're more likely to think, start tomorrow again tomorrow. So man, if you're in a hole, you gotta stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. So I, I would call that a cognitive refutation or, or more simply in plain English, fixing my thinking about food. It took me a number of years journaling about it, me versus my inner pig, all the different crazy things it would say, one bite's not gonna hurt, it's genetic, you're doomed, your parents are fat, you're gonna be like all these crazy things it would say. And I'd figure out what was wrong with what it was saying, kept a really clear record and slowly but surely, I got better. You know, I came down probably about 80 pounds altogether. That fixed me. So I was not teaching this. I was not doing anything professionally with it. In 2015, I got divorced. And it just so happened that a lot of the business dealings I had were intertwined with my, with my ex-wife. So I had to do something different. And I said, you know what? I want to do something meaningful. This thing really helped me. I think I'm going to turn it into a book. So I was minor part of a publishing company at that time, because remember I had a dual career, I was doing some marketing. And the CEO said, well, we need to publish our own book so we can prove to authors that we know what we're doing. And I said, well, I have this crazy journal about me versus the inner pig. And he says, I love it, send it to me. Two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, I don't eat donuts, donuts and pig slop. I don't let, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. He proceeds to lose almost hundred pounds over the next 18 months. Um, we published the book. I kind of sort of knew what I was doing in marketing, but I had no idea how popular it was going to get. It just, like, after about a year, it just took off. You know, we got, we have almost, we have over a million readers for the book. I got a column on Psychology Today, that got a million readers. We got all of these coaching requests. So I wound up forming this little coaching agency. Okay. From 
2017 or so through 2023, I run this coaching agency, about 2,000 people come through it. And I would describe the effort in that agency over most of that time as working on fixing people's thinking faster. So all we were really doing was opening the space and then fixing the thinking, fixing the thinking, fixing the thinking. We got really good results in, um, we got people down to an 89.4% reduction in overeating in the first 30 days. And I will um, continue what I'm saying right after the break. Thank you. When we come back, more from Dr. Livingston and his book, Defeat Your Cravings, The Back Door to Weight Loss. This is the wellness prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Connect with us on Twitter at 1059 The Region or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 1059 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Livingston discussed how he he was able to reframe his mind and lose over 80 pounds. Is that correct? Well, now we're going to continue the conversation. He's going to tell us how he's been able to help hundreds of people do the same thing. So before the break, we were talking about that and we kind of interrupted you. Um, So let's just pick up where we left off. Eight years after I fixed my own thinking about food and got better, I worked on um, helping other people fix their thinking about food with with over 2,000 people. And we got really fast on that. We could could get an 89.4% reduction in overeating behavior after 30 days. However, when I looked at the results at the six month mark, at the one year mark, they're not as statistically reliable, it was a little harder to reach people, but it was clear that they were dropping way down because people stopped doing it. There are these two groups of people, people that kept doing it were still doing really well, but there was these people that just dropped down and they were more at like 50, 55%. When I started to research that, which was really mostly in 2023, I found out that there's a reaction people would have. When we get to the point where they felt like we'd fixed all their thinking about food, like they didn't have any excuses anymore. But then they would say, oh, well, what the hell? Screw it, I just want to do it anyway. And I said, what's going on with that? Because it's so much nicer to live a life in control of food than to feel like food has control over you. Like it's, it's really, it really can be torturous to feel out of control. So why would people stop doing this? I found that the answer has to do with a broad category I call organismic distress. It's a a physiological distress of the organism. And most often it had to do with poor nutrition. People were skipping meals or they had way too much high glycemic food the night before. Um, Or for some reason they let their hormones get out of balance. So what we would do is try to alleviate all of these things. You know, we'd have people try to pay a little more attention to their nutrition, which is hard. Margaret Mead said it's easier to get people to change their religion than their diet. And I think that that's very true. Um, But we looked at other things like breathing techniques. You know, can you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, which signals your brain that there's no emergency here. There's a a, a dual nervous system inside of us. There's There's a sympathetic nervous system. You know this better than I do which gets you all revved up for action. And it turns out that that's the system that says just hand over the chocolate bars and nobody gets hurt. But then there's the parasympathetic system that says it's okay to rest 
and relax and plan and strategize and think about your long-term goals. And it's a long story how I kind of came to this conclusion, but I realized that if you told people to breathe out for slightly longer than they breathed in, and they could do that a couple of times, the sense of urgency would go away. I started having them doing the fixing of their thinking in writing because writing is an upper brain activity and you know, overeating is a lower brain activity. I would get them to take decision-free breaks over the course of the day. So even just two five-minute breaks makes a difference. Turn off your phone, turn off your computer, go hide in the bathroom if you have to, but get all of the input out of your system. Just stop making decisions. Is that what you're saying that the lack of the lack of willpower, quote unquote, so some people think that they don't have willpower. Is it just because of all of this extra stimulus during the day that we become distracted from the will from having the willpower to not make food control us? where we should be able to control our food cravings. I just want to make sure that I understand that and also for the listeners. So willpower isn't really a genetic gift. I mean, there, there might be some genetic differences, but it's not really a genetic gift. You should think of it more like gas in the tank. And this is why most people have more trouble eating healthy at night as opposed to in the morning, because over the course of the day, they're making decision after decision after decision. All of those decisions require a little bit of brain glucose and they wear, wear you down a little bit. This is one of the reasons that it works out better for your difficult food areas to make, make your decisions beforehand. So if I say I'll never have chocolate during the week again, really I'm doing what you're doing, which is having chocolate about 20% of the time and not eating it about 80% of the time. The difference is that I know which is the 20%, which is the 80%. And so I don't have to make that decision all week long. If you say, well, I'm going to indulge 20% of the time, but eat 80% of the time, every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you're making another decision, which works out fine if it's working for you. And I don't see any reason to change. However, for people that it's not working for, you might switch to a more precisely defined notion of when you can have it and when you can't. And that way your decisions are made for you and you're not burning willpower. Part of the problem in our culture is where we're told to indulge sometimes and you know, eat well most of the time, but we're not really given guidance about how to make those decisions. And so we're, we're burning willpower all the time. And, and so when it comes to so understanding, we all know what foods are good for us, fruits, vegetables, clean proteins. We know that, we see it. But what about making a decision to say, well, these are the um indulging foods that I'm going to allow myself to eat. So for example, I'll use me as an example. I will never pick up a Twinkie. I will very rarely open up a bag of potato chips. Um, but there are foods that I do allow myself to indulge in, one of them being chocolate, because if you get a good type of chocolate, it's actually not bad for you. Um, you know, I liked my I like my baked goods, so I'll make sure that I'm always selecting, you know, something that is well-baked and not from a package that's, you know, processed. Is that a great, I guess, negotiation? Is that a great way of helping you avoid those intense cravings and eliminating the foods that really aren't healthy for you? The short answer is that two out of three people seem to be able to moderate any given substance. And it varies by person. It varies by substance. So it turns out in the long run, I can't really eat chocolate. I have trouble moderating. So that one rule it made things better, but you really get to where I wanted to go, I had to give it up. But I can eat flour, 
Um, I could eat sugar if I really wanted to. I don't, I don't really like it. I like my fruit instead. Um, you know, some people can moderate, um, they can moderate cookies, but they can't moderate nuts. So, you know, the, the idea is to, if you want to maximize your freedom is to try rules that help you moderate things first. And if that doesn't work, then you might have to give it up. Um, but I want you to understand something about cravings so that you know why this is the case. Um, first of all, if you have stronger cravings than other people, that doesn't mean that you're sick or there's something wrong with you. It actually means that you're healthier than other people. In primitive times, if we weren't incredibly motivated to scan the environment for signals that food were available and then you know, go out and do what was necessary to get that food, we would have starved. So it's a survival advantage to have cravings. In the modern food environment, it doesn't work so well for us because you can go downstairs to the convenience store and buy 100,000 calories for $100. Um, so it doesn't work quite as well. Let's imagine there's a caveman. I will call him Thag, T-H-A-G, because I like the name. And let's say that Thag is out looking for bananas. And he sees a monkey, and he follows the monkey to a banana tree, and he eats as many bananas as he can, and he brings his home for his wife and family as he can. And Thag's brain has now formed an association between the food signal, which was the monkey, and the bananas, which is, um, you know, which is the reward. In the modern day environment, it would it would be, you know, seeing the Dunkin' Donuts sign and going in and getting a donut or a muffin or a coffee, right? Um, Thag's brain will not get excited whenever it sees monkeys. It will flood it with dopamine, and if Thag refuses to follow the monkey, it will deplete, it will deprive him of dopamine and make him unhappy until he goes to follow the monkey. Um, this was this was an adaptive mechanism. Um, but now suppose that the season goes on. And thugs and following monkeys all season and reliably finding bananas. But all of a sudden, the bananas are becoming scarce and he gets to a tree that doesn't have any bananas. Some people think at that point Thag would give up and go look for another food signal. But that's not what happens because food was scarce, food signals were scarce, and the brain wants to hold on to all the learning that it can. It's better to have a monkey that leads to a banana tree half the time or even 20% of the time than it is to have no monkey at all. Right? When you stop rewarding a craving, let's say I'm stopping at a Dunkin' Donuts every time I pass it on the way home from work and I'm having a couple of muffins and I'm developing a little punch, so I want to quit. Most people think the craving should go like this over time, but that's not what happens. What happens is Thag's brain in this situation would double down. It would secrete twice the amount of dopamine to make him even more motivated to chase the monkey, and it would make him even more miserable if he refuses to do it. So there's a little honeymoon period at first, which comes down a little bit. And then you feel worse cravings than you've ever felt before. This is called an extinction burst in the behavioral literature. I like to call it the, where the F of my bananas response. Um, but what happens at this point is that most people think this is not working. This is going to be too torturous. I'm never going to get through this. Oh, well, what the heck? I'm going to, you know, just do it. And they randomly reinforce the banana again. They randomly enforce the muffin or whatever the reward is. They randomly indulge again. That's called variable ratio reinforcement. It's the strongest reinforcement schedule in the literature. Because now you've told your brain that this monkey leads to bananas at random intervals. We don't know, so we better follow every monkey as hard as we can. This is why people get stuck at slot machines um, you know, in Las Vegas. You just have to keep pulling the lever because you never know when it's going to pay off. 
if that slot machine were to only pay off at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings, the casino would empty out the rest of the week. Your brain would learn that the reward was only available at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings. This speaks to your question about moderation. Um, you know, if I'm only going to have chocolate on Saturday mornings after I've done a workout, my brain is capable of recognizing that, that complexity of signal and it extinguishes all the other environments, all the other signals, except for when those three things come into play. And that's why if you really are struggling with something, you don't want to give it up. You want to bind it to a particular context in a, in a particular amount, a particular set of conditions so that your brain learns about it. What you don't want to do is reinforce it at random. You don't want to give up at the top of the extinction curve. If you get through, it's just a couple of days for a daily habit. If you get through that, it starts to come down pretty quickly. I feel now that listeners will completely understand that you got to watch out for those monkeys. Um, I can't thank you so much for joining me today. But if listeners want to learn more about you, if they want to buy the book, um, how can they do that? And tell us where we can find more information about you. So you don't have to buy the book because I'll give you a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. If you go to defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button, sign up for the reader bonus list. When you do that, you'll not only, we, we have traditional copies also, audible, hardcover, paperback, but there are traditional charges for that. When you do that, you will also get a set of food plan starter templates. This is a diet agnostic philosophy. You can't use it to starve yourself, but if you're willing to nutrify yourself, it matters less whether you're you know, carnivore or vegetarian, it matters more that you are, um, you're trying to eat healthier and that you're willing to eat on a regular basis and give yourself nutrition over the course of the day. You might like to hear how this works in, in reality. So I recorded a whole bunch of full-length coaching sessions. So you can see it's a very life-giving, affirming process, which takes people from feeling hopeless and confused and powerless over food to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and confident that they can do something about it. And it really just takes a session to make a major change. So I wanted you to um, wanted you to hear that. So it's at defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button. Amazing. I'm definitely going to take advantage of it myself. And I encourage all listeners to do the same thing. You can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Macchiala or my website, ClaudiaMacchiala.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. And I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at healthyplanetcanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.